Welcome to Hysterecology Podcast. You are here with Elizabeth Beckman and Andrea Hansen. We are so happy you're here and we hope we talk about something interesting today that might resonate with you or at very minimum, just be very interesting to us. So I am, I'm getting really frustrated with the trend recently of everybody being neurodiverse or neurodivergent. There seems to be this us versus them that's starting to happen with the neurotypical quote unquote people versus the neurodiverse or the neurodivergent people. And so I'm also seeing it referred to as neuro spicy. Oh, <laughs> uh, so it's becoming this kind of cool thing to be different and being different has always been cool. Being unique has always been cool, but now it's got this clinical edge to it that I don't think has, has been there before. Um, I think we've seen kind of similar trends in, in maybe um, there was a while that everybody was was gluten intolerant, whether or not they had had testing, yeah. right? And and that wasn't. Eventually, information came out that that's not necessarily healthy to just. No. We most people need gluten. It's yes. just if you specifically are intolerant, then it's harming your body. Yeah. Just like if you're allergic to peanuts, then it's harming your body. But that doesn't mean that it peanuts are bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're really good for a lot of people. And they're so good. And they're so delicious. Especially peanut butter. Oh, <laughs> I love it. It makes me so happy to think about. Anyways. <laughs> Elizabeth is like giggling. Oh. <laughs> Got like this big smile thinking I'm, about peanut butter. I'm drooling. I'm absolutely <laughs> drooling over the idea of peanut butter. I had no idea. <laughs> it's because I haven't had it for so long. Oh, no. I need some peanut butter. Yeah. Need me some peanut butter. <laughs> well, as soon as you're ready, we have a giant bucket of it. Yeah. I'll just be eating it by the spoonful as we're talking. During like, the podcast, it'll be a peanut be butter like a ASMR. I'll be like a dog trying to lick the peanut butter off the roof of my mouth. <laughs> That'll be it. So cute. Horrifying. Yes. For you <laughs> and for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it bothers me so much because I think, I think because, and I'll probably still, you know, be realizing different reasons why it's bothering me so much. But one of the big reasons it's bothering me so much is being quote unquote typical or normal is a, like a dying thing. Um, mm. where everybody has to be sectioned off into these different categories. And it makes it so that we cannot relate to each other as well. Or if you disagree with somebody or have a different perspective from somebody, then you're cast off as being an, uh, the other person, which currently the other person is the neurotypical person. It's like, oh, you don't understand because you're not neurodivergent. You're mm-hmm. not neurotypical. Yeah. Well, and it makes me just even what you're talking about right there makes me think of this book that I love. It's by the Arbinger Institute and it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. And also they have one, it's The Anatomy of Peace. But in there, they talk about this idea of whenever we're trying to other someone else or other ourselves, we're either maybe trying to make ourselves better than, worse than, whatever than. We are disconnecting ourselves and in a sense, often dehumanizing other people. And like you said, whether it's being neurodivergent is kind of this dirty or undesirable thing, which I think is the opposite of kind of what we're seeing. And there's kind of this idea that there's these normal people and then there's uh, neurodivergent people when really we're all divergent. All of our brains are completely unique and we're all going to fall in maybe non-normative places on certain spectrums of certain behaviors or tendencies. But there is this desire, as you're saying, to be very tribalist is how I see it. It's a very basic human drive. 
from ancestry where we had to have our little groups of people and we had to have this closeness and we had to have these things that ties together so that we can be safe. But in this society where we're kind of beyond in certain ways needing that to, to a certain degree, I feel like there's this synthetic attempt to create this specialness in these communities. And while there's a, a big benefit to that, like you said, there's often this bastardization of terms where well, what is a normal brain? Quote unquote, right. normal. And the mental health field has failed to, to define that. What is neurotypical? We do not know. We can't define it if we take into consideration all of the different cultures in the world, all of the different environments in the world, all of the different, um, and by environments, I mean, you know, at the large environment that we live in, what we're exposed to, but then also the interfamily environment yeah. and the school environment. If we take into consideration all of the different ways that humans can exist, how do we define neurotypical? How do we define normal in all of that in a way that is clear, in a way that we can sit two people down, test them and say definitively, this person is quote unquote normal and this person is quote unquote neurodiverse or neurodivergent. If we can't define normal, how are we able to define divergent? And then it ends up coming down to this, well, if somebody makes it work and they seem to adaptively be coping in their life or thriving in their life, well, then maybe that's what we call normal. I end up hearing kind of definitions like that, which are mm -hmm. very, as you've talked about, not grounded in anything, especially not physiological or neurological, and not even founded in any basic sets of criteria. It's almost this, well, if they make it work and they function and they can they can survive then, well, maybe they're functioning and they're typical. But for me, you, you have brought up things you've been kind of collecting for the last little bit. Statements you're seeing online where people are, again, bastardizing the term of neurodivergent. If you do this or you experience that, you are ADHD or you're neurodivergent. But I don't know if you have some of those off the top of your mind or have read them. them. I, will, I will read them off. And not that we're bashing anybody who has said these things or has thought this way, but trying to provide support and be supportively critical of what can be some of these dogmatic, not founded in anything meaningful mm -hmm. perceptions that I don't think are helpful. Exactly. And even the DSM, which we're going to go into in a couple of episodes with a, a guest that we're going to have on the show, even with that, within that, the criteria for each individual diagnosis within there, the cutoff that between a diagnosis and not having a diagnosis is having lack of function, lack of ability to function in typically multiple, three or four different areas of mm -hmm. life. And that it has to be clinically significant. Now, even that is subjective in and mm -hmm. of itself because there's going to be bias based on the clinician. There, a lot of it is based on self-report of the client. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the time clients are going in with a specific diagnosis in mind and they've already read what the criteria are and they know what to say to get that diagnosis because they've been convinced that they have this and now they want to get treated for it. And the informed consent of getting that diagnosis lacks information about that this diagnosis doesn't define you as a mm -hmm. person. It's not something that you can attribute every single thing that you've experienced in life to. It's not something that because we don't fully understand the diagnoses, because they are just clumps of symptoms that tend to go together, most people can fit under multiple diagnostic categories, not just one. And there's not 
cut, clear-cut treatments for each diagnosis either. So there's a lot that doesn't get said when somebody is given a diagnosis. And that contributes to all the confusion I think that we're seeing online. So when I'm and I, I believe also in Elizabeth, when we're talking about this stuff, we're not attacking individuals who have received a diagnosis or who have gotten swept up in the culture of self-diagnosis. It's an issue of the system at large that's creating this environment where this is now happening. And I hope to help stop misinformation. Well, and if the worst that happened with people self-diagnosing or seeking certain diagnoses was I have ADHD, I have depression, I have borderline personality disorder, I have narcissistic, I'm ADHD, or uh, I'm OCD. If that was the worst thing, well, whatever, right? But as we've brought up in past podcasts, there are real world repercussions, especially if you have a third party payer, an insurance company, someone else who has access to those records. And in fact, for that treatment to be covered, your therapist is required within either the first or second very quickly, they must have a certain significant diagnosis. And if they do not, for example, there are certain diagnoses that will not get your treatment covered. So and trust me, therapists know about these. And so you're going, well, I want to help my client, but if I don't give them a significant diagnosis, their insurance company will not pay for treatment, which insurance companies already battle you. Even if everything looks good, they will battle you or they will wait months to pay you and all these things. But the problem is there are real world repercussions, as we've brought up, can impact jobs, can impact adoption, can impact all sorts of areas of your life. And people are not informed. It's just, well, I got my care covered because they diagnosed me with, uh, you know, schizophrenia or And they're not bipolar. even necessarily informed that that's why they're being diagnosed. Yes. Is for the insurance purposes or to make a parent happy or so that they can fit into the special education at school so that, I mean, and then the school gets funding for that and they get more resources that honestly, every single kid should get every single, and this isn't blaming the, the teachers either. Yeah. The teachers teachers don't control overwhelmed. this. Teachers do not control this. Yeah. They, we live in a system and that's, uh, before I get to this list, that's another thing that really gets to me about this diagnostic inflation culture that we're in and this diagnostic trend is the fundamental attribution error where we're looking at these things that are happening and we're saying, okay, this is a defect within the individual or this is a difference within the individual. When we know that school systems are not set up based on childhood brain development, we know a lot about childhood brain development and we know that the school systems, at least in the U.S., are not set up to be conducive with those. So when a kid is struggling within the school system, is it because there's something different about the kid? Mm. Or is it because the school system is simply not set up? Yeah, there's something innately flawed in, in the, the system. system. But the, it's placed on the kid. So this kid now has to have a diagnosis in order to get the special resources or to be able to have a fidget toy. We need to be interacting with our environment in order for our gray matter and our brain to grow. So all kids should have a fidget toy. 
all kids should be doing recess much more regularly. No kid should be have t- recess taken away from them for behavioral all issues. All kids should have as much time as they need to get through a test, mm-hmm. right? What what are we reinforcing with, like you said, some of these systems that are put in place not to do anything other than for a school board to be able to say, look it, we've made an improvement in this area. And maybe all they did was reinforce, you need to get better at being able to uh, regurgitate this information, short-term memorize it, and then forget it so you can short-term memorize the next set of information for the next test. That's not knowledge. I mean, that's a skill, memorization and regurgitating information, but it's not actually teaching people how to learn how to think. And so like you're saying, you're making this amazing point and you've made it before. And I absolutely agree that are we really doing people a huge disservice? And I believe we are by saying they're the one with the problem when they're having what is probably a very physiologically natural reaction to a flawed and broken system. Mm-hmm. And yet we're diagnosing the children and even getting into that adults getting a diagnosis and not having full informed consent is one thing, but then children being labeled with things that could follow them and trail them throughout their whole life that they might naturally grow out of at a certain phase, or maybe they were misdiagnosed or mistreated. Or maybe they'll find natural ways to, to live within themselves and it will all work out. And especially when we look at the medication. So There are long-term effects to SSRIs, and while they can be beneficial for a select few people, they also can cause thoughts of suicide. They also can cause sexual dysfunction for the rest of your life. Even if you go off the SSRI, you can have sexual dysfunction for the rest of your life. If that's not going to make you depressed, right, then then I don't know what is, unless you're asexual. Or increased risk of stroke or developing Tourette's. There are all sorts of physiological, not just neurological side effects that Some things can be short-term, but there is not appropriate informed consent about the long-term effects of medication. Especially for children, they can be, they can be numbed down. They're so often that, that effect of being zombie-like, right? Which then, yeah, they're not disrupting the classroom, but what, to what impact on the child? And then we have ADHD medications, which the creator of the ADHD diagnostic criteria um, has recently, he's, he's passed now, but within the last 10 years or so has said that he does regret what he has contributed to our current society, that he does feel that it got swept up in pharmaceuticals and that ev- there are tons and tons of people being medicated inappropriately at this point. And the research that he did in the 90s showed that the medication for ADHD had a drop-off point of after two years. It was effective, but it did not increase a person's ability to be productive, to learn, to um, all of this stuff that pharmaceutical companies like to say, oh, this medication will make your kid the same as a quote-unquote normal kid. It does not. And on the other hand, it can create a, a manic type state. You can develop psychosis from taking stimulants. You can decrease your lifespan because it does make you age faster. There are a lot of negative impacts to diagnosing and medicating kids, but we're looking at how can I make this kid convenient as opposed to how does our entire system, our systems at home. I was talking with my spouse yet just yesterday about how incredible would it be if hospitals had people go to the homes of the parents every six months or every year and just say, look, these are the 
these are the developmental stages that your kid is in. These are the markers that we want them to reach. And here's how you can support them. And if if they're if they seem to be really struggling, here are some various different modalities of professionals, professional professionals who can use various types of modalities to help get them up to speed. And how much how beneficial would something like that be to circumventing having to diagnose and medicate children or have these children struggle their entire lives and then have this sense of relief and this is my entire identity now when they are diagnosed and given some kind of answer. Even if they could just send medical professionals to just observe the family system, what is happening in the home. Because yeah, you take a child who is acting out, quote unquote, in a certain way, you see them in an office and you go, okay, and you, you know, write down all of those behaviors and you track all of the potential symptoms and you observe, you have no idea. You have no idea the actual genesis of those issues. And if you even just went and could observe for an hour or more a family system, especially if the family is comfortable with you and they're not putting on a show and you're just seeing the normal dynamic, there is so much more we could do to really help, I think, families, parents, and children especially with medicating children, there are certain developmental phases of the brain and the body. And these phases, we know with trauma, they can, to a certain degree with brain scans, tell when trauma might have taken place in a person's childhood because there are certain parts of the brain that will be underdeveloped if they experience trauma during that time. And the body, almost kind of as a defense mechanism, will not, in, probably from stress, but also almost to kind of I think, shut down and dissociate, will stop developing or underdevelop certain parts of the brain. And so if you miss those stages, or if you're effectively in certain ways kind of lobotomizing a child with medication when they should receive behavioral support, or really the family and the parents often. When I worked with children, I loved everyone I worked with. Most of the time, the child was not the issue. The parents needed support. And even the parents were often doing the best that they could but they were really contributing to, if not causing the majority of the behavioral issues, whether it was more what we like ODD, like a child being obstinate and defiant or a child having kind of behavioral impulse control issues. So much of that tended to stem from parenting deficiencies or relationship deficiencies. So again, there's so many important things we can talk about. I know we're gonna be, I think, talking more in depth even about mm -hmm. diagnoses and the pros and cons and the and the bias involved, you know, even as you're yeah. speaking, I'm thinking there are statistics that show that children who are the youngest in the two youngest months of the year are significantly more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD throughout K through 12. So, so you're saying kids who are like the youngest, the youngest in the, in the grade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but if they're children who are in the youngest of the grade group are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. So we are at that point looking at simple brain development and how the kid is reacting within their environment with having kids that are even slightly older than them. We're not looking at a disease. And that's the danger of medicating and diagnosing. It's one of the you know few dangers of medicating and diagnosing when there are no biological markers. And by biological markers, I mean, if you go into the doctor and you say, well, my arm has been just really hurting lately and I can't move it. The doctor doesn't say, well, based on what you just said, 
it sounds like you have a broken arm. And so we're going to give you a cast because the, the cast can cause issues. It can cause muscle atrophy and skin issues. So the doctor's not going to do something that could potentially harm you unless there is a reason to do that. So they then validate the diagnosis. They look for the biological underpinning, which is the actual broken bone, which we see through an x-ray. Or the same can be done with cancer. You can list off symptoms and a good doctor can say, I think that's how the doctor narrows down on which tests to do. The doctor doesn't make a diagnosis based on self-report or even observation over a couple of different or teachers filling out a survey. You wouldn't see somebody getting a chemotherapy infusion based on self-report and teacher surveys. So there is a lot of damage that can happen there. So with ADHD, the the younger kids in the grade, with schizophrenia, um, black people are much more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. They're not more likely to have mm. schizophrenia, to be schizophrenic. And schizophrenia is one of those few diagnoses that we're getting closer to actually being able to see some biomarkers in. But that is based 100% on the bias of the person doing the testing. And that's even if it's full panel testing, there is still bias that can happen within the MMPI, within the full panel neurological testing. And then as we know, women are far more likely to be diagnosed with personality Mm -hmm. disorders, 75% more likely to be diagnosed. They're not more likely to be struggling with that symptomology. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to be diagnosed. So there is a lot, there's a lot going on with a diagnosis in the field. And the informed consent process needs to be addressing that so that we don't have individuals taking it on as a full identity, stunting their own growth because of it, taking it on as something that is 100% factual about Mm -hmm. themselves, and understanding the limitations when it comes to especially pharmaceutical treatments. Well, because we know the brain is powerful. They've even done research where they were testing if people could create Uh, neurologically a sensation of pain and perceive that they were experiencing pain if they told them they were doing either using a laser on their skin or something and they they weren't actually using a laser in this research they were just saying okay we're using this invisible laser we're turning it up and people would say oh yeah i'm feeling it i'm feeling oh that's really bad and what that tells us is our brain is really powerful i hope everyone knows that and it will work really hard to make true whatever we decide to believe. Of course, that's where, you know, cognitive behavioral type work can be valuable in and amongst many other modalities and perspectives used with it. But like you said, if we take on this idea of a diagnosis and we accept, well, I'm limited here, or I have strengths here, or we're imposing these things that maybe have nothing to do with how we are, maybe aren't even relevant. There's kind of a joke I remember hearing in my master's program that if you get like three therapists or mental health professionals in a room to perform a diagnosis or perform an assessment, you'll get four different outcomes of what's going on with the person because it is, it can be that subjective. And I'm not even differentiating that it can, it's that much different in the medical field. I have worked with plenty of doctors who did, in a sense, look at my symptoms and go, that's just stress. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a chronic inflammatory response syndrome. I had hypothyroidism. I had all of these other, I had food allergies going on. And until I had a doctor who went, oh, you this, let's narrow it down. Let's narrow it down. So this also happens in the medical field too. It is not just mental health. And while there can be certain tests that feel like they validate even more uh, medical health treatment, 
that sometimes as well can be as much up for scrutiny, I think, as mental health. And it brings us back down to what we were talking about, too, which is this tendency to kind of have this social fixation on I'm neurodivergent and what it means to be neurodivergent and having all of these false ideas because if the professionals can't get it straight, why should the average person, why would they have it? And so Mm -hmm. I know you've had this list up for a minute and I, some of these, you were sharing them with me earlier today and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, we have to talk about it. Yes. So I've developed, I've been, just as I've been seeing videos online or posts online, I decided to start compiling. So this isn't everything that I've seen, but this is just what I've seen within the last maybe two weeks uh, that I've added to this list. And there are things that people have decided to categorize them or, or are part of being either neurodiverse, um, neurodivergent, neurospicy. I'm seeing this interesting combo of ADHD, A-U-D-H-D, where people are combining autistic and ADHD, and then autism and ADHD. And again, this isn't to diminish the struggles that people with this symptomology have, that it is to pinpoint you know, what is happening with our culture right now. So this list, if you close your eyes and you see anything other than just blackness, then you are neurodivergent. If you talk out loud to process, if you process best and you're talking out loud, you are neurodivergent. If you only want to wear a bra when it is necessary, you are neurodivergent. (laughs) If you do goofy things when you're alone, you're neurodivergent because now that's being classified as stimming. Hmm. If you spend hours researching things, you're neurodivergent. If you, if anybody here who has any kind of, you know, higher education or PhD, that's news for you. If you bump into things uh, while walking around, or if you have random bruises, and you're not quite sure where they're from, neurodivergent. If you sit weird in chairs, this one used to be bisexual. Now it's neurodivergent. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, Uh, If you are very flexible, neurodivergent. If you don't invite yourself to events that were mentioned in front of you, but they didn't actually invite you to it, you're neurodivergent. So if anybody's ever talked about their plans in front of you and you didn't assume that you were invited, you're neurodivergent. (laughs) That was the one we were kind of laughing about this morning (laughs) of like, they, if you don't realize you were uh, invited to the barbecue, even though you really weren't invited to the barbecue, but your friend thinks that you were invited because someone just... It was so silly. I saw this <sighs> video this morning and it was just one of those facepalm moments where, um, and this, this person, just to clarify, does not say that they've had any uh, autism diagnosis, which even if they had an autism diagnosis, the, the inflation of autism diagnosis right now still po- causes some pause and some question of, does this person actually fall into severe... Um, I worked with autism uh, for two years in undergrad at a school for autistic individuals. And then I worked for two and a half years, almost three years at a clinic that specialized in autism. So I I know autism. (laughs) And what I'm seeing recently is a lot of people, you know, if you're smart, if you're quirky, if you don't like to follow societal norms, then you're autistic. And it's becoming this new twist on the manic pixie dream girl situation. Um, So, so there's always a question there. But this, this poster did not even say anywhere that she is autistic. She has mentioned some sensory processing, some anxiety, um, which are you know very different things, 
And she was describing the scenario. She starts out saying, how do neurotypical people know that's, uh, you know, the us versus them again, and Mm -hmm. assuming that neurotypical means something specific. Yeah. How do neurotypical people know if they've been invited to something? And she goes on to describe a situation where it was her, another friend, and a third a third person. The third person says, I'm having a barbecue later this month for my birthday. And then later on, her and this other friend were talking about the situation. And her other friend said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be going to the barbecue. Are you going to be going? And she says, well, I didn't know that I was invited because the person who mentioned the barbecue didn't invite me. And so in the video, she was saying that she is neurodivergent because she didn't understand that just because this person mentioned a barbecue in front of her that she was invited. That has much more to do with you know, societal norms, cultural norms, the type of friendship that they have, their communication styles. I mean, there might have been some nonverbals that we didn't hear about from yeah. that video. But if I, you know, when I've done social skills training with clients because they really did not understand social skills, in, with that scenario, my tendency would have been to say, if you weren't invited, then you weren't invited. Yeah. But if somebody didn't specifically say, oh, and I want all of you to come, are mm-hmm. you going to be able to come? To me too, I would have sat back and gone, oh, that's really great. That sounds like you're going to have a lot of fun. My perception would have been that. And that's a reasonable perception. And I think this is the problem with seeing everything through the lens of Uh, diagnoses and disorders. And by the way, if anyone hears lovely Charlie barking in the background, she's Andrea's amazing dog, just FYI. And if you don't, then I'm not going to include this in the recording. (laughs) And if you hear uh, an earthquake happening, it's just Charlie running across the roof. (laughs) Yes, it's just, it's a roof quake from Charlie, (laughs) our little, our mascot. But um, I do think this is the problem with pathologizing everything. First of all, I do think there is a greater, wider business that's being fed by that, which is pharmaceuticals and even the medical industry, which here in our westernized medicine, unless you find a really good doctor who kind of goes off the beaten path, it's mostly very reactive treatment. Mm -hmm. It's very much, well, I'll give you a blood pressure medication versus really going, let's get you on a diet that naturally brings your blood pressure down. I see this as a wider problem in that we have to pathologize everything. And that there's also, I think through TV shows where there are characters who, where there's more representation, it comes with it, this sense of it kind of makes it seem like you said, the manic pixie dream girl. I think there have been certain characters. I know even in the Power Rangers movie forever ago and in Oh, I hate this show. Oh, what is it? The Big Bang Theory and different things. The great thing, they have some representation, but it starts to, I think, put in people's minds. They're like, well, I do that. I do that thing. I'm similar to that. And they, first of all, aren't trained in diagnosis, not to say that it's a perfect art. That's part of what we're challenging right here. But there is this tendency to then I've had people too, which I found very strange over the last couple of years, almost push me to want to be diagnosed with autism. And I'm like, I've worked with you for a couple of years. You are not suffering with autism. If you're very much needing a specific diagnosis, this is where your symptoms tend to have you, it kind of fits and displays here most. This other may be issue if you're really wanting to go that direction, because I tend to as well focus more on strengths. 
I'm not very interested in just giving a diagnosis to give a diagnosis. It's frustrating to see people see it as something special, some way to differentiate themselves or to find community. Not that finding community is bad, but again, it's seeing yourself through a deficit lens of, in a sense, what's wrong with me, what's what's not going right with me or what's diverging from quote unquote normal. Even like you said, who defines the normal way to sit in a chair, right? How long have humans even been sitting in chairs as we, if we look at, you know, the history of all humanity and how Eurocentric might be that perspective if there's the right way. And it looks this like, I love sitting in chairs and crossing my legs. That's how I feel most comfortable. I just feel very comfortable that way. And yeah, I can get uncomfortable. I need to shift, but it means nothing. It means physiologically that's comfortable for me. End of story. Mm-hmm. Or flexibility or other things. The point is, this list that Andrea said, just in case we weren't clear, none of those things mean you're neurodivergent. Yeah, but- they're all <laughs> totally, totally normal things. And it's even it's even therapists online. And I find that incredibly disappointing. And I don't know if it's because they are trying to gain popularity and they do want people to like them by hopping on trends, or if they just don't know, if they haven't done if they didn't get the education i was taught in my i was taught in my graduate school program along with the other members of my cohort the limitations of the dsm that there are inter-rater reliability issues in the dsm to the extent where some of them are in the negatives hmm. that's terrible and inter-rater reliability is just exactly what elizabeth was mentioning earlier where if you get multiple different therapists in the same room give them all the same client uh, will they diagnose them the same? The inter-rater reliability is just terrible in the DSM. We were taught that there's, you know, there's no, you know, biological markers. That there's no validity. There's no validity or reliability statistically in the DSM. That doesn't mean that your what you are experiencing as a person is not valid. That's a different kind of validity. Validity within research is, are we measuring what we think we're measuring? Mm-hmm. Or are we just clustering these symptoms together? But actually, it's a developmental issue, or it's a hormone issue, or it's an environmental issue that maybe this person has a really unstable household, or nobody's reading to them, or you know whatever it is. So there is, there's no validity. There's no, there's really terrible inter-rater reliability, but maybe these therapists online just don't know that. And that's okay. I know some, some programs are much shorter. Um, some programs are much more intensive and it's going to depend on the professors that you have. There's this therapist online that I saw just the other day had diagnosed Ariel from Little Mermaid (sighs) with ADHD. Which has all sorts of problems doing this whole, I can diagnose this person just by watching Mm-hmm. watching them from afar to diagnose someone without having met with them. There's something called the Goldwater rule. It is ethically not possible if you've not sat down with somebody and have that treatment agreement, that treatment contract that I am going to assess and potentially diagnose you. It's not ethical. And I think even therapists being careless about, I'm going to diagnose this character. First of all, it sends false information out into the universe by a false sense of authority. But it's also, it's, it's pushing this uh, scenario forward of uh, that therapists can do that, which I think is really toxic amongst other things. But, or that even that can happen in yeah. general, that, that anyone can do that, whether they're a therapist or not. Yeah, that we're sitting back and I'm going, hmm, I'm noticing all these things about you and I'm watching how you're, and as therapists, yeah, it is, that's a part of us that develops. We pay attention to things. In fact, for me, the way it impacts me most is I feel very overwhelmed by the energies or actions of other people. 
when my role is not to be a support to them or to help them, I just kind of have to witness or experience sometimes their behaviors which are really difficult to cope with or energy that's really heavy or intense and I'm just overwhelmed. But anyways. Yeah, just exactly what Elizabeth's talking about is if we take these characters and we're like, oh, this person is, and I, I have the list here that she had written up that Ariel is impulsive, distractible, hyper-focused on her passions, doesn't have a great sense of time. She daydreams a lot. She isn't risk-averse, so she doesn't she doesn't try to avoid risk-taking. She can be absent-minded and forgetful and excitable. She's creative. She loves fast and hard things. She's intelligent, disorganized, friendly and engaging and curious. Uh, I don't know where this therapist was trained, but most of those have nothing to do with an ADHD diagnosis, even as it currently stands with its vast limitations within the DSM. They're just typical, they're typical behaviors, especially like with teenagers. Yeah, she's a teenager. Kids, those are really typical as somebody is experiencing all of these changes in their body, all of this growth, all of these hormonal fluctuations, and they're testing limits and they're developing their identity and they're figuring out kind of socially where they fit and what's comfortable. Ah, oh, and see it. So that that's like pathologizing teenager dumb yeah, to me. Just being an average teenager, and that can go really horribly wrong. We just recently had a discussion about the teen treatment industry, and when we're pathologizing this normal stuff that kids are going through, instead of sitting the parents down and saying, "Look, this is normal for your kid to differentiate from you." to just like Jessica said, are they out of control or are they out of Mm -hmm. your control? There's a huge differentiation between those two things. And these children, you know, if they're being diagnosed with these things, and if the parents feel like they are too mentally unstable, then they can be shipped away from home for a year and a half, two years. And I worry what it's reflectant of, and I'm not sure. I have to continue thinking about it. That there is a, in a sense, some of this movement, kind of going beyond hate, embracing yourself and your quirks and everything, and this idea of, I need a diagnosis. I need this thing that says I have this potentially irreversible, unchangeable issue. Which that's another issue with the DSM we've talked about, where some of these mental health issues. Not only is it just our best guess at seeing, well, these symptoms tend to happen together. What are we going to call it, right? And what what do we think best helps treat it? And there's some research, but like you said, not a lot of inter-rater reliability, not a lot of validity there often in many of these diagnoses that are be, being used even by professionals. But for me, I am concerned about what it says about what I think is kind of a parenting or a generational issue, where instead of people, and I don't want to be all or nothing about it, because there are people like TikTok, I love it, because there are also people who are like showing this amazing skill they have, this amazing craft, this amazing business, or who are so hilarious. I've never seen such hilarious people as I have seen, just the average person being themselves. But instead, there's kind of this fixation of, I want to be special by receiving officially a a paper that says I have a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, like we've talked about, what that means about how we're thinking about ourselves what it means about how we're treating ourselves, the limitations we're placing on ourselves, And honestly, some of this like seeking to be special through something that to me feels, first of all, really superficial. And in fact, almost in some cases irrelevant, 
it makes me think of the star belly snitches, uh, Dr. Seuss book. We were talking about this. And the whole point of that book, as I see it, is it's about social movement, social contagions, wanting to feel special. And so this idea of it's starting to be kind of treated like the special thing to have that diagnosis, that star on your belly. So Mr. McMonkey McBean in the book comes around the businessmen, the pharmaceuticals, the therapists, the whoever, and says, I can give you a star on your belly. Just give me $2 and slide down my machine and you'll pop out with a star on your belly. But then reactively, generationally, I think we're gonna see, okay, so then everybody has a star on their belly. So then what happens in the star belly sneeches? Mr. McMonkey McBean says, you wanna be special? Go through my machine, I'll take the star off. And so pay me another $2 and run through my machine. And the whole problem being all this chaos happens because everybody's trying so hard to be special off of this superficial thing, which first of all, may not even be valid. If you sat down with a different therapist, maybe it would be a different color star, a different shape star, but really it's not you. And we talk about this all the time, even if someone does have what does seem to be a very legitimate diagnosis, it fits well, the treatments they're receiving are helpful or medication, it, it's still not you. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there's this fixation on it instead of just talking about you, I think it's so toxic to present that idea that like a therapist can just like look at you and in five minutes have you figured out. I think it's such a disservice to just the broadness and depth of the human soul and being. And it, it tends to turn it into that star on the Nietzsche's belly. And I think that's a major disservice to the mental health field. I think it's a major disservice to people in general and people who really have maybe very serious disorders and have gone through the process of getting the best diagnosis and treatment possible. It bastardizes that. It really does. It's, it's this interesting flip on stigma where even when you said earlier, you know, by labeling yourself as unique, by putting something that is you know, something that is a, you know, quote unquote disease, right? On yourself. But even saying that, you get this pushback as I, I think that in trying to destigmatize mental health, a lot of the conversation around that was talking about the strengths and the uniqueness. And that's great. Now, yes. when I worked with autism, I, you know, I, there was a girl in the classroom who all she did all day long was banged her back against the wall over and over and over again, making kind of this noise along with it. That is stimming. She was stimming. Um, it's not doing something goofy, right? Yeah. Every now and then. So that was doing. Also, if she heard a symphony once, she could recite it back. She could sing wow. it back. She would hum it all day long. It was so incredible. Kind of echolalia, yeah. really extreme form of that. Yeah. Exactly. And her parents were musicians. So that was, it was really interesting. And not to say that autism and savants go hand in hand. They don't. Sure. And you know, sometimes they will. Another boy was constantly grinding his teeth down to where he his nerves were showing. Aww. That's stimming, right? That's uncontrollable stimming. He was also rubbing his hands together constantly. He couldn't really get up and go to recess and get up and do different things because he was he was so tensely in this stimming mode. Yeah. And also a beautiful strength that he had was he could give him any equation, any math equation, and just like that, he's got the answer for you right off the top of his head. Hmm. So in trying to advocate that these people aren't useless to society, yeah. one, because they might have 
cool things that they can do too. It's not like they're they're just stupid, right? It's that they have these neurological differences yeah. that we haven't quite pinpointed yet. But also, you know, people are valuable just because they exist. They don't have to yes. have any kind of skill. Yeah, we don't look at a baby and go, you're useless. Yeah, useless. You can do nothing and you cry all the time and crap in a diaper like useless. That's that's just a, we, we understand even with small children, there is just this innate potential. Mm-hmm. What you're exactly. talking about. Exactly. And right? even if they do have, you know, something so severe, they provide something. Their family loves them and other people love them. And that is something that they provide. They provide a different perspective. They provide an opportunity for empathy. They provide so many things. And throughout their life, they, they'll change, right? Things will happen. Yeah. So in trying to create a conversation around worth in these individuals, it seems like it's almost gotten to a point where having a diagnosis means that you are a superhuman. Yeah. It, and we're removing all of those other incredibly difficult parts of having the diagnosis. And we're looking at these mild interactions and these mild confusions that are just within the ranges of normal social confusion. Yeah. Right? It, interacting with other humans and not being able to read minds is a struggle, yeah. right? And we're, we're turning that into... At least for me it is. <laughs> right? We're turning that into... The, this diagnosis like that's not the line has moved so far and a book that i love that i think should be required reading for everybody if not everybody coming out of some kind of like mental health schooling is by dr ellen francis called saving normal his mentor was on the chair of the board who created the dsm 3 and then he himself was on the chair of the board who created the DSM-4 and the DSM-4-TR, which was the revision between the 4 and the 5. Right now, we're currently working on creating the 5-TR. And when he heard about the DSM-5 coming out, his mentor was talking, he was coming out about it regularly, the guy who was in charge of the DSM-3 and saying, look, things are getting incredibly out of hand. So Dr. Alan Francis went to this party that was all of a lot of the people who were involved in creating the DSM-5. And as he wandered around the party, he started to realize this is a huge issue. He was going to stay quiet about it. He wasn't going to get involved. He doesn't really like contention. But as he was realizing that people were just talking about wanting to add in their pet projects, um, <sighs> things that they were seeing but that weren't necessarily Validated. actually researched yeah. at all or or anything. They just wanted to put it in the DSM or they wanted to arbitrarily change cutoffs or change diagnostic criteria. And it was just a discussion being had at a party, which is, to be fair, how the DSM-3 was created. The diagnoses that made it into the DSM versus that didn't make it into the DSM or the cutoff lines like a depressive episode having to last two weeks as opposed to three weeks or two days was all just based on literally a group of psychiatrists sitting in a room and arguing. Which, by the way, I love psychiatrists. They do wonderful work. And also, compared to other mental health professionals, psychiatrists are often spending 10, 20, 30 minutes in a room with any given client and then are often prescribing very serious medications. And so while they have very legitimate training and to a certain degree legitimate perspectives, they are not, I think, even viewing a full spectrum of who who a human being is. And so whenever you get a group of humans together, this battle for power, this battle for being able to go, yeah, that was me. 
Mm-hmm. That was my thing I can add on my resume that, that I contributed this little pet project, but that is there really validity to any of it? And I just have to say a side note, Andrea loves saving normal so much. It's sitting right here on the table next to us. I know it's not just because she was going to mention it. She loves it so much. It's my emotional support. Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, though, to be (laughs) be fair, she does. (laughs) I I read it regularly. This and and some other books, and I look at research regularly. And I I don't just get on a train and write it. Right. I. I want to double check. She jumps check. off. I jump off. through into a river, like <laughs> yeah. in those adventure movies, mm-hmm. to get away from the bad guys. And then I climb trees and I sleep in them. And then <laughs> she touches grass and braids grass. Yeah. And I commune with the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> All those things. She has to go to the zoo to do that here in Utah, but... Mm, yeah, it's a bummer. <laughs> but I, um, I do, because it is hard. It's so hard saying these things in a culture where therapists are jumping on board, psychiatrists are jumping on board. Um, So many people culturally are just jumping on board and self-diagnosing. So as I'm out there trying to say, hold up a minute, let's critically think about this. I get a lot of backlash, a lot of people assuming that I don't understand what I'm talking about, that I have a very basic understanding of psychology, that I, you know, am just being mean for no reason. I have a lot of conviction in this topic and I have looked into it and it's been a journey myself getting to this point as well. I I have had many diagnoses over the years. Um, Her goal is to collect all of them, yeah, like playing cards, like a and then we can exchange them. And then I can be the most neurodiverse of all of the neurodiversity people. And anybody who's not as neurodiverse as I am doesn't understand anything. Queen of diversity. I'm queen the queen of, neuro- of neurodiversity. Diversity. When I was very young, I didn't talk, right? I could talk, but I didn't talk unless it was to very a few select people. To the extent that I did break my arm at recess in second grade, and I didn't tell anybody. Wow. Two weeks later, my mom realized that I had been cradling my arm quite a bit and took me to the doctor. So at that point, I would have been diagnosed with selective mutism. Mm. I also have always had sensory issues. I don't like certain um, fabrics. Uh, They make me itchy. I hate mouth noises and noises that are similar to mouth noises. And I, you know, so between the selective mutism diagnosis and some sensory stuff, I could have very easily been diagnosed as autistic, given today's current trends. Yeah. I struggled throughout elementary school with uh, having a really messy desk and not really always getting my assignments in and struggling to learn certain concepts. I could have easily been diagnosed with ADHD. I, you know, in my teen years, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and probably a couple of other things that I don't remember because I was at that, um, I went to residential treatment and you have to give several very severe diagnoses to justify a kid being in residential treatment for a long period of time. So I probably have all of those diagnoses. And as an adult, I was diagnosed with bipolar and ADHD and borderline personality disorder. Now, every time you go to a new therapist, they're giving you these new diagnoses or a new psychiatrist, right? Um, And so I've been medicated for all of these different things, bipolar, ADHD, depression, anxiety. Ever since puberty, I had 
not slept every third night, every third night, sometimes more often. But when I say not sleep, I don't mean I didn't fall asleep until 3 a.m. or I was waking up consistently throughout the night. I mean, I would not sleep at all. And it would drive me crazy because I had to be quiet, right? Or like you're trying to get rest. So you just lay there in your bed and there's all these rules about you're not supposed to look at screens because that messes with your melatonin release. And so I had tried everything. I was so desperate. I was so exhausted. Um, And I would be so tired throughout the day, but then I would lay in bed and all of a sudden I had all this energy and I was thinking of all these projects that I wanted to do. But by the time morning rolled around, I was way too tired and I couldn't do any of those projects. And with this cycle happening over and over. And I had been prescribed um, a sleeping medication at some point during my teenage years, and it did not help at all. I was still up all night long. And then the next day I couldn't open, I could barely open my eyes. It was a struggle, struggle, struggle to stay awake. Um, so I was going through this process and got, they were like, well, that does sound like bipolar and some antidepressants, which was the medication that I had for sleep was within the antidepressant category. Sometimes that can make bipolar symptoms worse instead of better. So it makes so much sense that you are bipolar. So I start taking these bipolar medications and the medication for sleep started out great. I was able to sleep, but I built a tolerance to it incredibly quickly. I had to keep taking more and more and more to the point where um, I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. It, it freaked my spouse out. It freaked me out too, but I got up to go to the bathroom and I fell asleep while I was walking. Oh, so, and then I got up again and sat on the toilet and then fell asleep and landed wow. on the floor. So it was causing these issues. So then I go back to the doctor and they say, okay, well, in order to put you on something more intense than this, you have to do a sleep test first so that we make sure that we don't kill you. And then if you, if that one doesn't work, then the next step is this drug that, um, is, is really, really intense. You would not even be able to wake up if there was a fire in (laughs) your house. So my doctor told me a lot of parents will just decide to, deal with not sleeping until their kids are old enough and out of the house so that they don't have to worry about their kids' safety when they take their meds. So then fast forward to when I'm really focusing on healing my trauma, which is a huge, huge thing for me, a huge stream um, throughout where I had done, you know, some work on my trauma and I felt like, okay, that's taken care of because it doesn't bother me anymore. But I didn't realize yet that it gets so ingrained in our cells and in every single structure in our body. The body keeps the score, right? Exactly. And uh, it disrupts our neural development, like we were talking about earlier. So I hadn't really done the in-depth trauma work. So I started really focusing on that. And then I started looking more into functional medicine. And that's when I started seeing an adrenal fatigue specialist. And it turns out with a combination of working through my trauma and magnesium, I've slept every night for a year. Wow. Which is insane. My doctor never even mentioned that as a possibility. My yeah. psychiatrist, none of the therapists. They didn't know. They, yeah, they, they likely didn't know. didn't know. And if they had heard, it was brushed off. The pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry, unfortunately, funds a lot of medical school and the continued education. So there's so much bias in that. So when I'm talking about digging deeper, But I'm talking about not just accepting diagnoses, even if they seem like, yeah, that that checks out. I mean, that bipolar diagnosis made so much sense for me. I really wanted that to be the answer. 
but it wasn't. Well, it was it was a, maybe an adequate way to try to define or uh, box in your symptoms, but it wasn't the source and the exactly. cause. It was a dis- and I think that's the problem with the DSM generally, is we act like, for example, bipolar is the problem, and mm-hmm. like you said, there are no underpinnings physiologically, neurologically, that really justify to us, what if people who we consider to have bipolar just have major hormonal imbalances or have unprocessed trauma or, you know, and so what if what we're calling this collection of symptoms, but then we say, yep, the problem is your bipolar. It's like, no, these symptoms that we're calling bipolar, they stem from something else. And I'm not saying that that's the case. I don't know enough to say that. And there are legitimately serious symptoms, I think, that we all experience, and some of us chronically. But I didn't want to totally cut you off. I felt like the yeah. point you were making, though, was really powerful there. Yeah. It, it, so in my mind, it's it's digging deeper. It's figuring out, for me specifically, managing symptoms isn't good enough. I had this feeling, I had this drive that there that I could experience wellness, that that could happen for me. So I kept going and going and going until I figured out what would help me experience wellness. And I think, like Elizabeth was referencing earlier, that's a limitation of our entire Western medical mm-hmm. field, whether it's you know the your regular doctor, your psychiatrist, your therapist, there's this symptom management culture mentality, mentality yeah. right? Where you have this thing and all we can do is manage the symptoms. And I see that being the end of treatment so often when my clients get a diagnosis, then everything is just, oh, it's just my, it's just my bipolar. It's just my depression. It's just my ADHD. It's just my, and, and I can't do anything about it because this is how I am. This is who I am. And all I can do is manage it. Yeah. The DSM is too young for us to say definitively that you have any of these things. It's not enough. It's yeah. not enough for me. Yeah. And if it's not enough for you, then just know that you can dig deeper. It's not the end-all be-all of everything. It's not the golden standard. It's not a great standard at all. There are other answers. And if your therapist or your doctor isn't encouraging you to explore those other options, go do it on your own. They're not the authority in your life. Similar to what we were talking about in our last podcast, you have to treat the whole body. And so talk therapy is probably not going to be enough. And you know, medications, if truly, truly required, are probably not going to be enough. And dietary changes are not going to be enough. And getting more physical activity or creating more safety in your home or finding out if you have allergies or finding out if you have hormonal imbalance or, you know, adjusting unhealthy relationships or getting out of toxic systems you're a part of. Any one of those things is important. But like you're saying, it's not enough. You are too dynamic and whole of a being to be able to be explained in one or two pages or several paragraphs in a book written by a collection of humans with biases and different perceptions and their own blind spots and their own interests and their own agendas. And so do yourself the favor of seeing yourself more wholly. And if you're working with professionals who don't seem to have that ability to see you as a whole being and help you continue to expand your perspective of yourself as a whole being, it might be time to shift. 
It might be time to find people who see you and consider you as a whole because maybe you have bipolar disorder or what we call that now and maybe in 10 years, five years, three years it will be called something else. Maybe you literally have a magnesium deficiency and you haven't worked past trauma but wouldn't it be such a tragedy if there was a more natural, a truly more getting to the heart of the issue way you could treat and heal that wasn't just about managing symptoms and keeping you stuck or sick if you don't have to be. You know, since I have come to my own understanding of diagnoses and all of that kind of stuff, for the last several years, I haven't been on any medications. I've worked with a hormone doctor and an adrenal fatigue doctor to figure out lifestyle and um, and supp some supplements or some different types of food intake to level out. And then a lot of it for me was also just environmental. So the reality is I do understand what it means to struggle. And I do understand what it means to struggle in a way that can be categorized in many different diagnostic categories. And I have seen clients go through the exact same process and that and the process typically also includes, you know, when you get a diagnosis, it's such a relief, everything makes so much sense now. And then a couple of years later, you're like, crap, why am I in the exact same spot that I was, yeah. even though I'm going through all of this treatment stuff? And so, so through that process over and over again within myself and within my clients and then reading the research and reading books like Saving Normal and I've come to an understanding that these were things that I was experiencing and they did not define me. They were not anything that was lifelong. They're not chronic. They're just kind of situational, maybe a little bit of a hormone imbalance as well. And that's that. And I'll likely experience various symptoms in my future as well. But does that mean that I should be diagnosed with something that is considered a lifelong chronic illness? No. And a question for you. Do you, and not that I'm saying you, you should share it if if you do, unless you want to, but do you actually feel like any of those diagnoses fit you now and are relevant now? No, I don't. I don't. I, I think that they made sense given current circumstances where I was at at the time, but they also didn't because I was always functioning. Yeah. Right? When I was giving a, given an ADHD and bipolar diagnosis, I was working full-time as a mental health therapist at a residential treatment center, so that was really 24-7, right? Parents never give you a break. I was also running a private practice. I was also raising two children. I had also been a single mom for several, several years, so it made sense that I would not complete all of the tasks that I needed yeah. to complete or become agitated during certain circumstances or lose my keys or lock my keys in my car or whatever it is. Right. And so, of course, being on a stimulant helped for a while. Was it healthy? No. By the way, anybody who doesn't know Andrea, she is the most intelligent, striving for physical health, striving for knowledge, uh, absolutely passionate in the field, knows what she's talking about. I think the most incredible mom, like her, one of her kids came up and said something the other day and I'm like, oh my gosh, it was the word they used was so eloquent. And I'm just like, she just raises these awesome kids who feel safe to be themselves and are just dynamic and wonderful. And so for me, it's just so painful to think you had to go through being labeled. And I, I, I am so appreciative of you being willing to talk about it. I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum where 
I have absolutely had struggles. I identify very strongly right now with suffering with ADHD. And my dad, the funny thing is a lot of females, especially when it comes to diagnosing, don't get diagnosed as kids just because of the way we present. We might present as more distracted, quiet, daydreaming, drawing or doing other little things, doodling. So a lot of women will end up getting diagnosed from what I'm seeing like in their 30s when their kids, especially like their sons or daughters are getting diagnosed. I kind of had a different experience where my dad in his 60s, and I was just used to how he was, but then after he got diagnosed, I was like, oh yeah, you really suffer. You really suffer with this. And he, like me, was suffering from the weight of all we had to do to just get ourselves to base level function. There was so much hyperfixation. There was so much difficulty. Like for me, my brain feels like a sandstorm tornado. I mean, I can speak, I can sound articulate because as I said, on the opposite end of the spectrum kind of of Andrea, uh, maybe not in all ways, but I masked, just masked to this incredible degree where I was always kind of taking on internally the burden of struggling and feeling wrong and feeling shamed and having rejection sensitivity, never getting work done. I never read a book. I'm, I'm dyslexic, which also wasn't diagnosed till I was older. So I felt just like I was so stupid with that, which I love reading. I just have to consume books in a different way because it's so difficult to read traditionally. For me though, I finally, as I got older, I was dealing with, I diagnosed at a certain point with anxiety, um, with depression, all of those things though, stemming from not treating my ADHD. And I'll say with medication, I regrettably don't ever get the benefit of any type of like energy boost from it. People talk about that. And I'm, even though when you have ADHD, this is my perspective, it's not saying this is, you know, candid, written down in the book, but uh, I've seen it with enough people who suffer and take medication. They don't uh, often get as much of a stimulant boost as maybe someone who isn't suffering. And not to say you weren't suffering with some of those tendencies for a time. But for me, it's generally, it just would quiet everything. And I felt I almost could take it and take a nap. It would quiet everything and calm everything to where I'm like, oh, I can actually just sit and create or be creative or... I can just do these basic things that aren't super stimulating or way below my capacity instead of sitting and ruminating on them for five days or 10 days, or I can take a shower without just fixating on how burdensome it's going to be to have to do this repetitive action that I'm going to have to do a thousand times for the rest of my life. It made me be able to let go of the burden of so much of depression and anxiety that for me were what was, uh, well, my untreated ADHD was the source of that. And my medication, I don't even necessarily feel like it works very well, honestly. I try different dietary changes. I try different lifestyle changes. I try to also, I always am very good at masking and adjusting my behavior. And sometimes when I'm just letting myself talk at the speed that I want to, my husband's like, what up? what's up? What did you just do? And I'm like, I'm literally just not masking right now. And we'll kind of laugh about it. But there's a line I'm trying to figure out walking, which is, feeling, like you said, that relief of this is something I've been suffering with and I don't have to carry shame. There was never anything, never anything wrong with me. I just didn't get the right support. And people thought I just was inattentive and that I was too energetic or that I was too talkative or that I never got things done or I never read through a book and guessed and lied on all of the tests or teachers got upset at me or shamed me because I never read through instructions or never listen all the way fully. And it's very difficult to do that. And so I would be shamed in front of the class or if I couldn't do math problems or because they found there can be certain tendencies of people who suffer with what can look like ADHD 
I believe also having issues with processing math. There's some interesting, sometimes comorbid things that are happening there. Who knows what's happening in the brain? But uh, all that being said, I think that we've both been through our own journeys of uh, struggle. And I do overall agree with you this labeling someone and saying, this is something we're going to write on your tombstone. <laughs> you have ADHD and depression and anxiety and this and that and all the rest. And not assuming that these might be temporary, like you said, or situational or hormonal, physiological, like sensitivity to, to things. That may not be, again, because you're autistic. It could be because literally you have your skin and your body is reactive to a certain substance. It's allergic to it. It's mm -hmm. not comfortable. Or maybe you just don't prefer it. But I feel like more of us as therapists need to talk about this. And we're wondering if you got shadow banned on TikTok <laughs> because you were, you were starting to see more engagement and all of a sudden it dropped off. And it happened to coincide with some mental health professionals on there uh, not being willing to kill their darlings. There's a, an idea in writing that to write something really wonderful, you have to be willing to kill your darlings. Those things that you're just connected to and attached to. You have to be willing to let them go to really create something amazing. And I feel like as therapists, we can, like a security blanket, cling to, kind of sometimes from a Dunning-Kruger perspective, cling to the validity of something that doesn't deserve that level of validity. Not to say there's not value in the DSM. It's better than nothing. But to pretend it is the <laughs> commandments written on stone, delivered straight from God, no, it's changing all of the time. That's why there's version one, two, three. And I believe version one had like nine diagnoses and we're in over 200 yeah. at this point. And I wanted to add to what you were saying as well, that for those of you who don't know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth is in intelligent, empathetic, creative, right? Incredibly creative. She's able to make these really beautiful designs out of, she'll, she'll find these little seashells at the beach and make these beautiful designs out of them. In my mind, that is a very kinesthetic learner, which is not the environment of education that we yeah. grew up in. Just like struggling to read. I never read a book either. I just, I pretended. I right? guessed and it was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those tests and I was like, I think, and I was not a good guesser. Yeah. Or like, I just remember what I heard the teacher say, as opposed to actually like reading the book, you know, and uh, it breaks my heart that our school systems and our systems are set up in a way that a brilliant mind like Elizabeth would be considered lesser than because it is zeroed into one specific type of learning. Yeah. Right. As opposed to, as opposed to that people are diverse and, and what is the criteria of ADHD right now? I hope that we continue to look further into it. And, yeah. and Elizabeth is one of those that I trust to look further into it, right? Looking at the hormones. I know you've you've gone through that, going through all the just oh, yeah. you know all of the different dietary things. And oh yeah, the, for that and other issues, for yeah, medical issues, but for all kinds of stuff. But there's with that kind of symptomology. Some of it, I think, there's some symptomology under there. Others, I think, is you know brilliant, right? And we were able to look at this when we look back through history and we look at the artists and so many of our most profound, incredible artists also were different from other people. And does that mean that they're bad, that they're ill? Or does that mean that they have this incredible, beautiful mind that 
it allows them to think in this really incredibly unique way. And it adds a spectrum of color to the color palette that we are able to see as humans, that we're able to exist within as humans. Um, so it's it's hard. And like Elizabeth was saying, it's uh, and like Elizabeth was saying, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth, or like, as I would call myself when I was little, BB butts. <laughs> What's your name, BB butts? BB butts. <laughs> it's hard to walk this line between understanding the lack of validity within the DSM, between understanding the harm that can come from diagnosing and the the whole identity that can come along with that and the limitations for with the medication and and the different impacts because we don't know how exactly medications are interacting with the brain and that's part of why there's so many side effects and they, they're not just super yeah. they're not super well, effective. we don't even understand the brain how could we understand all exactly of the so we we just don't know so much within mental health and the dsm is supposed to help us gain knowledge about that it's not supposed to it wasn't before, you know, insurance and pharmaceutical companies and everything got a hold of it. It wasn't supposed to be something that we were giving definitive diagnoses about. So I, my hope is that we continue searching, that we step out of the box. We look at what is happening in the environment, what is happening in our culture. And I've talked about this a bit on TikTok as well, that we have a culture of rigidity, of lack of movement, of being hyperproductive all the time, of really needing an us versus them as far as normality. So I hope that we can expand our culture. I hope that we can expand our school systems. I hope that we can look deeper into you know, if there is a level of distress within the diagnosis, what needs to change you know, biologically? Is there something that needs to be changed biologically or is there something that needs to be changed in our culture to just accept this as human? Well, and I'm, I'm a big believer in cross-pollination of ideas. And if we become too insular and we treat the DSM as being an end-all be-all, we totally miss out on, as you're saying, kind of a broader spectrum of what's possible and what's going on in our lives, what's going on for other people. And like some of the most meaningful ideas I've gotten are from leadership books or military books. My husband's in the military, so I'll read whatever he downloads to our Audible. Or, you know what? Listening to Jane Austen, quote unquote, my way of reading Jane Austen. Or other, just even classic, as you're saying, these incredible minds I have learned so much, and if we get too insular and then even into just a particular modality or a particular quote-unquote disorder, we're missing out on so much. And I think we're really doing ourselves and our clients a disservice. If you are a mental health professional and you feel frustrated or threatened by anything we're saying, I would really challenge you to lean into it, but then step back from it and go, huh, what is there I can learn from this? Why do I feel so threatened about this? Why am I maybe so dependent upon or why am I so committed to needing the DSM or diagnoses to be the end-all be-all? And know that we're not trying to wipe away what is valid and valuable there, but we are wanting there to be a valid level of recognition of the limitations. And the reason why there continue to be new versions is because it's a moving, working, breathing, fluid thing, but it's not always guided by research or legitimate information. Some of it, as Andrea was saying, there can be other things with human beings, pet projects and things that get in there because it's someone's darling. And I would say to anybody who is feels like you're suffering or that you are quote unquote divergent, first of all, I would say, I think we're all divergent. We're all unique because there is no true normal. 
that is a, an illusion. I think just like the idea of pe when people say, I'm not perfect. I'm like, oh, can we just eliminate that from our vocabulary? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> because, yeah, sure, nobody is. So it's, it's a silly fault, um, you know, goal. But if you are really suffering with something, know that we are not saying what you're experiencing is not legitimate, that it's not real, that you're lying or that your experience isn't true. My hope is that you're not creating your identity around that or putting too much stock in maybe something that doesn't deserve you to put that much stock in it. But know that we, we believe you, we're here for you, but we want to help you not get locked into maybe false perceptions about mental health, certain diagnoses, or yourself. We want to free you from that. And uh, hopefully today, if there's anything we can expand on further, please let us know in your comments or questions. We are reading those, but know that we're here for you. And if there's anything we've said that hits you the wrong way that bothers you, let us know. Let us have an opportunity to address that even on here and be accountable for our words because we're not the end-all be-all of knowledge either, but we are just trying to shine a light on something that does not get enough discussion. We so appreciate everyone listening. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this discussion was meaningful for you in one way or another. We'd love to hear from you, like Elizabeth said in the comments. If there's a topic that you would really like for us to address, to talk about, whether it's related to this or really anything within the mental health field, we're here, we're watching, we're listening, and we want to have conversations that are beneficial for you. So let us know. You're more than the star on your belly. Take care of yourself and have a good day.